Well, this morning we're cont- uh, continuing our discussion of, of James, and this is week 11 of our study of James. Looking at a life that is lived 24-7, living it out in reality. Last week, Pastor Steve challenged us from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, especially in the area of our dealings in business. It's interesting, we've been getting uh, phone calls and emails all week that uh, some of you are... S- since last week's message, have started prayer meetings at work. And uh, Pastor Steve shared in the earlier celebration that uh, one of them has now turned into a Bible study. And uh, I saw a, I hope this isn't like, turn the tape off. No. I I hope this isn't a government secret, but I guess uh, uh, an edict went out at DCSC this week saying, just want to remind you that uh, religious services and, and prayer times are allowed here. So that's pretty cool. Good things happening all over the place. Well, Pastor Steve challenged us last week with the idea of looking at our self-sufficiency, especially in this area of business. He reminded us that first, having wealth is not condemned by God. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that being wealthy, that having money is wrong. Money is neutral. It is not inherently evil. It is what we choose to do with it and how we choose to respond to it that can be sin. Second, he reminded us to not omit God from any area of our life, especially our work, to invite Him in to our workplaces. And then third, he challenged us to develop attitudes that please God and put Him in control. Develop attitudes that please God. These attitudes were first submission, the reminder that God is the CEO. He is the largest stockholder in our life and should have control, and we should submit to his control. The second is dependence, that we should be people who are dependent upon our God, reminding us that he knows everything, so we need to seek his strength and his wisdom in our life and in our business dealings. Third challenge of an attitude is that of integrity. People who work within the boundaries and within the rules that follow the right path in our business dealings. And then last, the attitude of surrender. Surrendering all our ambitions, all of our dreams, all of our plans. Submit them all to the Lord. And it's out of that passage now that James steps into this next discussion. Now remember, in the original text, there were no chapter and verse breakings. So we wouldn't say, well, he's on to a completely new topic because there's a big five in front of it now. This is a continuation, really, of the discussion he began at the end of chapter 4. Those of you who have been here all 11 weeks know that James can be rather blunt, can be kind of like a bull in a china shop when it comes to the way way that he's writing. And he begins chapter 5 with these words, Now listen. Now listen. I think that's probably because he realized if he didn't do this, this next section people might want to skip through. So just warning, you are not going to like this. I hope that as we're done this morning, you like me still. Because James kind of steps in it here, and just steps right out there, puts himself on the line, and he says, now listen, you rich people. Some of you now are going, oh, not me. Let me find the bulletin. Well, let's take a moment and read the passage, and then I'm going to challenge you with whether you are, you're one of the ones that James is talking to as he writes this passage. Starting in verse 1. Of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now there's a start. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look! 
the wages you failed to pay to the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Quite the section, right? He starts out with a bang. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, well, who are the rich? And of course, the opposite question is, who are the poor? Who's he talking to in this passage? Well, I believe that this idea of, of rich and poor lies in the question of excess. Of excess. Who has excess? Well, the rich person has extra. He has assets that he or she can do with as pleased. Now, certainly there are all kinds of different levels of excess. But the person who's called rich is the one that has certain things that they can choose to do with as they please. They can make choices. The person who would be called poor is the one without that excess, without the ability to choose. The one who lives from day to day to day. The truth is that in our country today, there are massive differences and huge gaps between those with more than enough and those who struggle day to day. Correct? I mean, if we in reality as Americans look at our own country, we have to see that there are massive differences between the truly rich and the very poor. Now, some of you are saying, well, I would still identify myself as poor. Well, let's start here, and then as Pastor Steve says, we'll we'll move back to about 16,000 feet and get different viewpoints. I think there are three ways to look at this question of who is rich and who is poor. First, let's look in this room, this culture of ours, this westernized culture of ours, this Americanized culture. Some would be considered poor, and others would be considered rich under the standards of our country, okay? Of, of our area, of where we live in this country. Some in this room, you have no question that your bills are going to be paid. You know you make more than enough, you're going to pay your bills, you're going to take care of your responsibilities. You know that you're going to be able to purchase food, and you know that there are extras that are going to be thrown in. That you're going to have extra. Others, though, wonder about the bills that are coming in. And still others wonder about the pile of bills that is already there. You could be sitting next to a rich person. You might be sitting down the row from someone who's poor. In this room, by our definition in our country, there's rich and there's poor in this room. Now let's take a step back. And let's look at our community. We're going to just look at Franklin County, because that's easy to understand, and it's where most of us live in or near. This Franklin County area, nearly 1.1 million people in this county. Nearly 13% of that number, which would be 140,000 plus people, are considered below the poverty level. Now, the definition of the poverty level is if you have a family of five and you make less than $24,000 a year. Now, to calculate that out, a family of five on $24,000 a year or less, 13% of the people who live in our community live below the poverty level. Of that 140,000 plus, 52,000 of them are children. So suburbanites, you can't say, well, get a job. They're children. 52,000 children live below the poverty level in this county. Within 20 minutes of this place. That means that roughly 1 in 10 people who live in Franklin County are in poverty. We also know that nearly 13% of Ohio households, households, 
not individuals, that would be half a million. 13% are called food insecure. What that means is they don't know where tomorrow's meals will come from. In Ohio, half a million households don't know where their food's going to come from tomorrow. So now who's rich? Let's take another step back and let's look at our world. 53 out of every 100 people on this globe today live on less than $2 a day. $2 a day. Calculate that out. $60 a month. The average person in the U.S., taking into account our richest and our poorest, the average person in the U.S. makes 75 times that amount per day. There's a request in the Lord's Prayer that says, Give us this day our daily bread. I'd ask you, when was the last time you quoted that line and it actually had need attached to it? That when you said, give us this day our daily bread, you were asking for today's bread. 53 out of every 100 people in this world who might say that prayer, mean it. Need is attached to it. You know, in Uganda, where we're just starting some work, and a team just got back, we're working in a refugee camp there that includes people who have been uh, moved because of the war or because of the uh, because of AIDS, and in that camp are seven thousand children. Seven thousand children, and we're going in desiring to get them in school, to get them clothed, to give them food every day, to reach them for Christ. From the efforts the last few weeks, new lifers have taken on fifty. 50 children. How many does that leave? 6,950 children. In poverty. No education. No clean clothes. Not knowing where their meals will come from the next day. Without an opportunity to discover the love of Jesus. So now who's rich? all how we look at it i think we need to challenge ourselves to realize that you know sometimes we do we need to look in the room and then other times we need to look at our community and then we need to step back and look at the world james is talking to every one of us today listen you rich people what does he say to them well he gives them Some warnings. Some warnings to the wealthy. His first warning is in verse 2 and 3. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. James says, watch out or you're going to become secure in the wrong things. You're going to become secure in the things that are going to corrode, that are going to corrupt, that are going to rust out. Watch out. you Listen, you rich people, watch out or you're going to start becoming secure in the wrong things. Money gives a false sense of security, doesn't it? You know, the more I have, the safer I feel. Well, the problem is that that goes against what the Bible teaches is supposed to be our dependence upon God as a needy person, realizing that only God offers real security. But we become very secure in our finances. The Bible actually teaches that being rich is a disadvantage. Isn't it the Bible that says that it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven? It's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. Why? Because of the riches. What does it say is easier than a rich person getting into heaven? Cramming a camel 
through the eye of a needle. I challenge anybody to give that a shot. That is easier than rich people. That's easier than you and I getting into heaven. Why? Because if we're not careful, we will find our security in the wrong things. You see, what we have in this room is a bunch of rich people wanting to get into heaven. And God says, you better watch out. Because you're going to find your security in something other than Jesus to do it. When was the last time you really, really needed God? Is your perspective in life eternal or is it temporal? Is, is it about the future? Is it about the big p- picture? Or is it about the temporal? What I've got right now, what I've got and what I'm going to do with it. An American Institute of Public Opinion poll was recently taken and 70% of the people polled said they would be happy if they could only earn $37 more per week. Are you kidding me? What's that all about? What that all is all about is we're finding our security in, th- in the wrong things. $37 more a week. Now, then I could be happy. What's the cost of happiness? Apparently $37. You know what the problem with that is, though? You know what we as Americans do? Well, we'll, get, let me, let me, we'll pass out $37 a week to everybody for the next six months. How's that? You know what's going to happen? Six months later, everybody's going to need another $37 a week. Because this wasn't a survey of poor people. This was a survey of Americans. So no matter what level of income they were at, if they just had $37, well, I doubt that Bill Gates was in this survey, but $37 more a week would do it. Oh, please, just $37. It would make me happy. But what do we do? Well, we get that and then we want more. Because our security is in the wrong thing. First Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain. Boy, but there's an arrogance about our wealth, isn't there? Kind of a, I'm secure. Second, James says, Don't just watch out because you'll become secure in the wrong things. He says, watch out. You'll lose sensitivity to the needs of others. You'll lose sensitivity to the needs of others. Look at verse 4. I love this word that James uses. Look. I don't know how he's using it. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. These are those around us in need, James says. What's happening? Do you, do you realize that the cries of these workers are all around you? The underpaid. Those who are working hard but have not been paid, have not been treated fairly. We say, well, that doesn't happen. Excuse me? It happens all over our world. It probably happens in our community. It probably happens at your workplace. You know those Christmas lights you put on your Christmas tree every year? You know who makes the majority of those? Chinese prisoners who are in prison for being Christians are making your Christmas lights. You know what they get for it? Nothing. Nothing. Have we become so rich that we forget the cries of those who suffer, who are working hard but have not been paid. And then he talks about these harvesters, those who are overworked, those who have been treated unfairly. They're overworked and underpaid. James says, you better watch out, or you will forget the needs of others. You will become sensitized to the fact that there are people struggling around you. Next, James says, watch out, or you'll think you need more money than you really need. 
you're going to get to the place you'll th- you're going to think you need more money than you really need. Look at verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatted yourself in the day of slaughter, meaning when it was time to eat, <laughs> you got fat. Wow, if there's ever a room full of people who live in luxury and self-indulgence and are fat, that is us. Isn't that our attitude? So many times. He says, watch out, or you are going to believe that you need more than you really do. You're just going to start believing it. There's a story in Matthew 13, verse 44. Turn there real quickly. Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus is telling a story to get a point across. And he comes to verse 44 and says, The kingdom of heaven, a relationship with Christ, knowing him, the kingdom of heaven is like what? A treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold, how much? All he had and bought that field. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that this, this relationship with God, this, this understanding of eternity, to live in light of eternity, is like this treasure in a field and it's buried. And we'll put it in a little chest and we'll say that this guy found it. What's he do? Okay, he puts it back. And then he goes and he sells absolutely everything he has and buys the field. Why? Because that's the way that he gets that treasure. That's the kingdom of God. Why would we ask if God is valuable enough to give everything else up for? Why would we say, why would we say I'm going to hold on to my stuff? Why would we rich people say, it's all about this stuff I got? And if I could get 37 more of them, then that would be even better. And God, the God of the universe, who sent His Son to die for me, I got my stuff. Why would we ever say that? And yet how many of us have discovered that treasure in that field and left and not been committed to having that treasure. Jesus was once approached by a rich man who was asked, how do I get to heaven? Jesus says to him, sell everything. What was he saying to the man? Until you realize I am much more valuable than all that you have, you're not going to understand what it truly means to follow me. Better watch out. We're going to think we need more than we really do. You know, people without money often think that if they had it, they'd, they'd all be really altruistic with the things they'd do with it. If I had money, I, I'd do these good things with it. I'd, I'd help the poor and I'd do this. You know what? I'm afraid that the reality of that is rarely the case. But most of the time we end up just indulging in more of what we already have. So none of us can kind of piously look at ourselves and believe that that wouldn't be us. And then James gives a fourth warning. Watch out. You'll become someone you don't like. Watch out. You're going to become someone you don't like. Back to verse 5. You lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've gotten fat in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Now, the original language indicates that this doesn't necessarily mean they killed people, but that they would take people to court or they would conduct business practices in such a way that it would pretty much ruin somebody's life. Watch out, James says, or you're going to become somebody you don't like. Is this who we want to be? Is that who we want to be? People who live in luxury and self-indulgence and kind of just keep getting fatter? We're just kind of piling on more and more stuff. See, we never quite have enough, do we? 
You know, how many, how many of you have owned more than one home in your life? One house, okay? How many of you own more than one car? Okay. Me too. I have four cars. I drive the worst of them, just, you know. I'm not bitter about that. But. <laughs> Why do we do that? Well, I remember back when we had our, it was always, here was always our line of thinking. It was twofold. Well, one, we need more space. For the kids. Need more space for the kids. That was one line of thinking. The other part was, well, we're making more now, so we need to buy a, a better house. Well, I'm making more now. Now I need a, a, a bigger car. I need, I need this more expensive car. Where, did that come, where does that come from? I believe that that kind of thinking gets in our lives because we, we just believe that, well, we have to kind of keep up with our income. Whatever happened to the idea that, okay, I'm going to live on this income. Now, God, hey, God has increased what, what he's giving me. I'm going, to use, I'm going to give the rest away. I'm going to figure out ways that I can achieve something better than maybe a bigger house or a bigger car. Well, you say, well, that's just mean. Well, I'm talking to me, too. And James is warning us that we're going to become people who are so into luxury and self-indulgence and getting fatter and fatter that it's going to cause us problems. People say, you know, there's a thing you hear people say, money does weird things to people. You know what I've never heard anybody say? Money does weird things to me. Why don't we say that? Well, because we don't think it does weird things to us. It's, it's those other people. Wealth often tempts us to gain the whole world and lose our own soul. See, winning is addictive. Making money is addictive. And it becomes virtually impossible to remember the spiritual realities when money starts coming in. Jesus knew this. I wonder if that's how James knew it. You wonder if the brothers ever had a discussion about this. We're going to look at Luke chapter 12, a situation where Jesus addresses this issue. And guess what? He and James agree. Luke chapter 12, and verse 13, these same warnings come out. James warns us, listen you rich people, watch out. In verse 13 of Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Jesus is speaking, and someone in the crowd kind of pipes up, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to him, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You see, Jesus knew that this guy was just trying to use him. Was, was just trying to get him to say something that he could go to his brother and go, well, Jesus told you to give me half. Jesus said, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm seeing through this. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He's basically saying, you are really greedy, and you're trying to get me to give some spiritual answer that you can somehow guilt your brother into giving you part of the inheritance. And Jesus says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Listen again, rich people. A man, our lives do not exist in the abundance of our possessions. We will stand before God one day and he will not ask how much we had. He will ask, how much did you do with what you had. And then he gives this parable. And he told them this parable. Now when Jesus starts a parable, you best listen. Because this is a way, this is a story he's going to tell to get, our, get the point across. And we better get ready because at the end of it, we're going to be messed up. He says this, The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, 
This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Jesus tells this story. In order to really understand what he's saying, we've got to understand his audience. So he's talking to this group, the majority of which are probably of what religious persuasion? Jewish. And he says this phrase. There was a certain rich man, produced a good crop, and he thought to himself. Then later on it says, then he said to himself, and he made decisions. What we have here is a man who is alone. A man who's alone in his decision-making process. His wealth has isolated him somehow. What this does is it, it violates the Jewish code of community of the day. So his audience would have said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean he, th he decided things by himself? Because this just didn't happen. You would never have considered a big decision like this outside of community. It just wouldn't have happened. There was a thing called the city gate. And in the cities and villages, it was the place where the men, especially the business owners, would gather to gain insight and seek advice. And they'd gain input into decision-making, especially on financial matters. What the city gate was, was a chance to get together with your community, to think out loud with friends and colleagues. The assumption is that you live life in community. The Jewish code of the day was, we do things together. This is about the community. Decisions are made on what's best for the community, not what's best for one individual. So Jesus is like shocking these people, saying there's this guy, and he thought to himself, and he talked to himself, and he made decisions by himself. Whoa! You see, we're, we're not used to this. Because we forget to live in community. And as good Americans, we say, no, no, I make decisions on my own. We are islands. We do this on our own. But this, this group of people would have been shocked by this. You, you can't make this kind of decision on your own. There's a term that uh, began being used in the Middle Ages. And it's the term idiot. You've heard of the term the village idiot? Well, unlike in movies where we kind of get the idea that the village idiot is kind of this goofy dude that, you know, kind of runs around doing funny things. It's kind of just slightly off. The term originated and was used for someone who tries to live alone, who chooses to live outside of community. Not some goofy person, but someone who says, I'm going to make my decisions for myself about myself. Jesus uses this to show that a person making decisions by himself and for himself is not wise. You see, he realizes greed has set sets in. Remember, he's talking to the person and answering the question about a man who asks a question that is founded in greed. In verse 17, we see that he has all this abundance. It's an abundance of food, grain and possessions. There's all this stuff. Well, in that culture, there were the very rich and the very poor, very few in between. And they had regular contact with each other since they lived in comparatively small communities. So this man would have, or at least should have, been able to see and know the needs of the people around him. People who were hungry. People who were needy. The poor. And yet, what did he do? What should I do with my surplus? Let's see. Let's all think. 
what should I do with my surplus? Are you nuts? Is it not quite clear what he should have done with his abundance? How was he able to make this stupid decision? How was he able to make the decision, well, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to tear down the current barns, and I'm going to build bigger ones so that I can store up all my stuff, and I can use it for my retirement. And when I need it later, I'll get to it. How did he make that decision? Well, he'd somehow completely isolated himself from community so far that he couldn't make a logical decision. He was making decisions for himself, by himself, about himself. He had all this abundance. Yet, here was, here was the needy person right there. If he ever left his house, he would have seen there were needy people in his community. And unless you have somehow isolated yourself from direct contact with those who have unmet needs, you must realize, we, we each, you and I must realize that within this room, within our church, within our community, within this world, are people who are needy, are people who are poor. Now, maybe, maybe it's just that statistically we know that it's true. But have we, like this man, placed ourselves in a position where we cannot hear the cry of the hungry any longer? Have we decided that politically that is not our responsibility? Or that's not what my party says? Now, this, this wasn't written to a party or to a government. This was written to you and I. We are the ones that are responsible as rich people to meet the needs of needy people and to hear the cry of the hungry. Please, let's not count on our government to take care of this. I think they've had enough years to try to figure this out. I don't care what party you're part of. It's the church that's blown it. Better stop there. You see, this man made himself a committee of one. He stands alone, he builds alone, and he indulges alone. Well, what happens? Well, Jesus finishes the story and says, now God steps in and says, you fool. Now, the, the base word in the Greek here is fron. Fron. It means your center, where your breath comes from, the seat of life. It's where we get the word diaphragm from. This place that we breathe from. That's the base word. Now, Jesus could have chosen two different usages of this word. He could have chosen ufron. And that's, the word where, that's where we get the word euphoria from. It means filled with the best that life has. Jesus doesn't choose that word. Jesus doesn't say that God says, you, you person who have chosen the best that life has. Jesus chooses a different word, and he says that God steps in and says, Afron, the opposite of Ufron. It means without understanding, without passion, without life or breath. Here's this rich dude. I need to hang on to my stuff, because I might need it. Oh, there are people who need it around me? Sorry, I'm building bigger barns. And God steps in and says, You, you, you person who have no understanding, no passion, no life, no breath in you. That's pretty harsh. He says, Tonight, your life will be demanded. Now, this word demanded is a patio. It is a legal term in the Greek. It means when you had lent someone something and then legally say, okay, I lent this to you. It's time to give back what I lent you. 
See, God steps in and says, you lifeless, breathless, passionless person, it is time to give your soul back. Because it was on loan. God says your life has been on loan and now I want it back. You see, God sees the greed and it causes Him to say, Enough! I want your life back. You're done. You're done. See, wealth is a gift. Our life is a gift. It's just on loan. You see, notice God didn't ask for the food or the barns or the riches back. He asked for what? The man's soul. Time to answer. And if you're going to make that kind of idiotic decisions with your wealth and with your excess, then you're done. God knew that our life and our wealth are connected. That our wealth and our soul get intermingled and we choose whether wealth will take take over our soul. And one day, my soul and your soul will be required by God. And we will stand before Him. And we will answer, what did you do with me? And then what did you do with your stuff? The question is, what we're going to do about those around us with less excess or no excess at all? You know, we can evaluate them. I think we're very good about that. Let's do that. Let's evaluate them. Let's tell them they should have studied harder, saved more, spent more wisely, worked harder, made wiser decisions, been born in a better country or raised in better circumstances. Let's do that. Because we're good at that. And then we can just close it and we can go home. Because then what have we done? We've kind of placed it all back on the poor per- on the needy person. The person with less excess and just said, you know what, this is your problem. Deal with it. Well, how do we think they got there in the first place? We can spend all day saying it's I can look at somebody and say, it's your fault that you're in the situation you're in. I can spend all day doing that. But I think James and Jesus would say, why don't you get off your high horse, stop looking down your long bony nose at everybody, and take your excess that is frankly mine in the first place and help and do something with it. What are we going to do about the people who are sitting in this room, who are sitting down the row from you, who don't know where the next, how the next bill is going to get paid? Who are under that poverty level? What are we going to do in our, in our community, in this county, for the, the, the 52,000 children who frankly don't know what they're going to eat tomorrow? What, are, what am I going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? You're going to go home and have roast. That's what you're going to do about it. That's what, you know, that's how we do. We hear, we hear something at church and we go, oh, that was nice, thank you. Off to the buffet. The buffet of life. I'll just wheel myself right up to it. What are we going to do? Are we going to do that? Are we just going to evaluate And just make ourselves feel better because we're so much better than these stupid people who obviously are so stupid that they can't meet daily needs. What? What are we going to do about 6,950 kids in a a camp in Uganda? I'm sorry, did they do that to themselves? Did they decide this? Did the single mom who's struggling paying the bills tomorrow... Decide to do that? 
Frankly, as a pastor, I get tired of hearing things like, well, you know, they should have worked harder at their marriage. Ah! Yeah, maybe so. Is that your... Are, you, are we supposed to be evaluating that? What are, we, what are you going to say to the widow down the, 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 the row from you who's living on, you know, hoping her Medicaid holds out? Well, you should have planned better. You know what that is? It's, it's just to kind of assuage our own guilt. Say, well, I don't really have to be responsible for this person if I can come up with some reason that they're not needy enough or that this is their problem. I was reminded yesterday, just yesterday in a conversation, of how much we need community and how important community is and how when it falls apart, we are a mess. When community doesn't step in, when we don't step into our brothers' and sisters' lives and do something, go past the ease of of relationship and move in and do the hard stuff in order to meet a need. What are you going to do with your excess today? What am I going to do? Well, maybe you can discover the need of another person or family here at New Life and you can meet a need. It doesn't always have to be financial. Maybe there's something you can do. What are you going to do? You say, well, I don't know any needy people. Well, the first question I ask you is whether you are in a small group or a ministry. If you're in neither one of those, then you don't, you're not even trying to develop community. So how would you know the needs of anybody else? Only 50% of our membership, and remember, all of those of you who are members, when you joined, you said, I'm committing to be part of a small group. You know how many of us are members of small groups in reality? About 50%. Well, no wonder. There's no, if you're not in community, you don't know what the needs are. Find the need of another person or family. At, at a minimum, call the office. We'll tell you. Somebody in the office, probably, we, we, we know who they are. Find a single mom or a widow and share, the, share with them out of your excess. I heard about a small group who is going to try to gather as many of our widows as they can and do Easter dinner with them. Gosh, that's hard, isn't it? Find them. Maybe find one of the, the individuals or families in our church who doesn't have family that lives close here and kind of adopt them. Just minister to them. Call the outreach office. Get t- details on how you can help meet desperate needs right here in Franklin County. The missions that we work with are begging for help. And you knew I was going to say this one. Maybe you should go on a mission trip. This right here. Faith-stretching prayer request for 2007. Number three, more new lifers than ever sent outside the walls to evangelize, serve, teach, and minister. Our goal is more than ever. You know how close to that goal we are right now? Halfway. And the season to get in a mission trip or go outside these walls is almost over. Maybe you need to go to China. Maybe you need to go to Thailand. You need to reach out to Muslims. You need to go to inner city Chicago. You need to head to West Virginia to some of the poorest counties in, the, in America. Maybe you need to use your excess and the excess of your friends and get you there. Hey, I got a cheap way. I think it's 50 bucks or less. Go to a prison. We got them. Prison ministry. Last time I checked, we got some right here in Franklin County. Go to the prisons. Reach out. Go to Victory Mission and help. Go to Stowe Center and serve food to homeless people. Honestly, if you can't figure out anything else, buy some groceries, go to any underpass in our city. Maybe adopt one of the children in Uganda. We need to, put, we need to be putting more kids in school. Give them a place to sleep, to eat well, and give them an opportunity to come to Christ. The team that came back from Uganda said, you know, we, we went into this area where we were given the kids we support gifts and school supplies and things. I said, that was great. The hard part was looking over our shoulder and at the fence. Seeing the 6,950 kids that didn't get anything. Is that who we want to be? 
You know what? Just share Christ with another person who is lost in the immediate, with no thought of eternity. As Christians, we are fabulously wealthy. We are the ones who have the chance to offer life's greatest gift to paupers. Please, I beg you, do not leave here without asking yourself, what do I have to share? What is my excess? Ask yourself, will I choose to live in community or will I live outside it alone? What am I going to do? Will I be stirred by what God has told me today or will I be changed? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Father, it is just hard sometimes. We get caught up in our culture and our society and what it says we're to do. What's good and bad and Help us to evaluate ourselves from your word. God, I pray that in this moment you would break hearts. Break the hearts of rich people, of those with excess. Break their hearts with the needs of someone else. May we not be a people who keep storing for ourselves but giving away. God, help us to look at in, our incomes as well. As, as I'll live on this part so that I can give away a greater part. Help us to realize we are not responsible just for the 10% that you ask us for, but we are responsible to be stewards of it all. Father, break our hearts for our community, for those in our church with needs. Break our hearts for the needs of this world. I'd ask as your heads are bowed to just ask God those questions. Maybe use your sheet to write down what he tells you. Whatever he's telling you, won't you obey? Heart song is going to sing. I want you to consider, what is God saying to me? Am I supposed to be a part of community? Well, the answer to that is yes. So you have to ask yourself the question, what am I going to do about it? Ask, ask God to break your heart for the needs of those with less excess than you.